Welcome to the Meditation Conversation. You are listening to Karan Alessandra. Hello and welcome to the Meditation Conversation. We are delighted today to be with John Lockley who is a traditional African, a South African Sangoma a shaman who also has a background in Zen Buddhism and has spent time in South Korea studying under um, Zen master Subong. Um, he began as a medic in the South African army and he then had a strong prophetic dream calling him to become a traditional shaman. And then he suffered for many years with a severe illness that's inherent in all ancient shamanic cultures that accompanies the call to become a Sangoma. And it's cured only through apprenticeship with a shamanic teacher, which he couldn't access until apartheid ended, which took seven years. So seven years after that initial calling, he was blessed to finally meet his teacher, who was a Ngosa. Is that? Is that? Ngosa. Ngosa. <laughs> okay. Um, medicine woman. And in one of the poorest townships in South Africa, and he printed, uh, apprenticed under her, her tutelage for 10 years. And he is working with people now using prayer and dream work, connection with ancestry and nature to help um, heal them and, and bless them. And he's the author of a wonderful book, which I'm rereading. So I'm in my, my second round of reading The Leopard Warrior, which is a beautiful, beautiful book that tells his story. And um, and he also has audio teachings, The Way of the Leopard, which um, are available through Sounds True. And um, and then he's also available available for private consultations via Skype and in-person divinations. And so it's such an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Yes. Welcome, John. And uh, you wanted Thank to start you. by leading us inward a little bit to connect before we start the conversation. So I'll hand over to you. Yeah, sure. So the focus of the work that I'm teaching and that's inspired me is to help people connect with their soul, to help connect with their spirit. So I just encourage the listeners and ourselves to just drop in and connect with our heartbeat. So just taking a nice breath inwards and feel the pulse of our heartbeat. And see if you can feel the pulse in your hands. See if your body can be very still so that you can feel the pulse in your chest. 
See if you can feel the pulse in your feet. And then what we do is we just breathe into the pulse of our life force, of our heartbeats. And then we say in Kosa, so we say we ask the great spirit and our ancestors to please open the road for us so that we can realize our humanity in this world and the next so we can move forward in a good way with our gifts and help other people with our gifts so we can connect with our humanity and we say thank you and we honor and praise you great ones the ones who have walked before us the ones who are helping guide us from the other worlds. Help us to listen to you. Help us to walk in the ancient way with dignity as we were meant to walk, as we are meant to walk with dignity in the ways of our forefathers, in the ways of our ancestors. And as we walk with dignity, may we shine a light for the future generations so that they can be guardians of this planet the way they were born to be. Siddhi Kamako. We honor and praise the ancient ones. We honor and praise the great one, the great spirit, the great dreamer. just saying please open the road ancient ones please open the road so that we can reconnect with our humanity we honor and praise you so thank you i'm happy to be with you thank you for inviting me thank you so much John. little gathering 
That's beautiful. Wow. That was amazing. Thank you so much. I almost so want to take a moment just to <laughs> process this and absorb it. I know. I feel like I'm in on the savannah, on the savannah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, brought me back. So, John, you say that you have come to help people connect with their soul. But how did the journey start for you? Was it um, something you felt as a child? It was just yearning or how did you, the connection with spirit start for you? Okay, I can touch on that a little bit, but I think if people want a fuller explanation, then they need to read my book because it's quite a long story. <laughs> and uh, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what I can say is that there was a few moments where I've received a calling to connect with, with you could say, with my soul. And... Um, it happened, there was a few moments of it in, in my time growing up. So the first that I could remember was when I was four years old. And the next time I remembered when I was maybe six or seven. And the next time was maybe when, when I was around 16. And um, I was about to enter, I was adolescence. Well, I was really on the road to adolescence, but I was going through the time of initiation for young young men and um and i received a dream and in that dream i remember i was at school and and i had this dream and in the dream i was in south america and and i was searching for gold literally searching for gold and i was in this jungle and it was very vivid and i was walking through the jungle searching for gold and then i found this big casket and I opened it, and there was the gold. It was the most amazing thing. And I was deep in the jungle. I could feel the vines and the tropical atmosphere. And I had found this gold, and I was so jubilant and so happy. And then I woke up, and as I woke up, there was this woman's voice that said to me, in order for you to find your destiny, you're going to have to come close to death. And and it was a very simple and it was a very poignant and very clear woman's voice that was speaking to me in this way. And, um, and I was actually happy because it, it made a lot of sense to me. And I, I just felt this, this euphoria, this incredible euphoric feeling. And at that stage, South Africa was there was two wars going on in South Africa. The first was there was a civil war, which, which was called apartheid in South Africa. And the second war was a, was a war on in Angola, which had been going on for almost 10 years. And, um, and white males were conscripted or drafted into the South African army. So when I woke up from that dream, I knew it's at, in the next couple of years, I was going to be drafted for the military. So after that dream, was very clear for me that I needed to, I needed to sign up for the the, the medical the medical corps. Um, so one of the things I was allowed to to choose what areas of the armed forces to go into for my conscription. So I chose the medical corps because it was very strong for me after the dream that I needed to work with people who are dying, and it was clear for me that. 
when I entered the military, I needed to enter the military and train to become a a medical a medical person, so a medical orderly. And in South Africa, we call it the medics. So I wanted to become an operational medic, so basically a, a paramedic, and go to the front lines. And and then I would learn about death. And and that's really what happened. So when I went into the military a couple of years later. I, I signed up for the medical corps and I was accepted because I had good marks at school. And, and then I went through my training, the medical corps. And at that stage, the war in Angola just ended a few months before. So I didn't have to be an operational medic or a paramedic on the front lines, which was probably a good thing. Um, so my first assignment was working in the medical um one of the medical hospitals, one of the military hospitals. And, and that's how it all started for me. So it started with me working in all different sections of the military hospital. And I asked for the, 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 the matron of the hospital to help me to, to work with, with patients who were very sick. And eventually she moved me into... I wanted to go into the intensive care unit, but she put me into the she put me into the neurology ward. And within the first few days of being in the neurology ward, we put someone into a body bag. Um, a sergeant who had died. And then I was given a couple of patients to look after. And one of them I nursed for six weeks before he died. And then I watched him die. So um and that's what started my journey because being faced with life and death changed something inside of me. And as I left my patient's room, I prayed and I said, please, God, show me another way of healing where I can connect with the soul of someone and come back and speak to their family and give information about how they are because my patient was in a coma for six weeks and he couldn't talk. And every day his mother would ask me if he was going to live or die. And I was only 18 years old. Oh, wow. And I wasn't equipped to learn all these ways of communicating with uh, family members. And we had the best medicine probably in the world there. I mean, this was like a private medical hospital. It had everything. And despite having all the best medicine in the world, my patient was still dying. So I made this prayer from a very strong place as I left his bed because I knew by the time he came back, he would be gone. He was going to be, you know, he was, he was going to die. So it was the last shift that I did with him. I prayed and I just asked to be shown a way where I could connect with the soul of a person and then come back and give a message to the living and also really help do something constructive because even though we had the best medicine in the world, the suffering was enormous and we like, it just felt like we couldn't do anything. So I left his bedside. I said my prayers. And then a few days later I came back from leave and his room was empty. He was gone. And then that precipitated a, a very extreme um, existential crisis for me, which precipitated in, in me learning meditation and Zen meditation. And because of the seriousness of the situation that I was in, when I meditated and I learned Zen, 
I did it like a soldier. I did it with incredible tenacity and veracity, and I was extremely disciplined. So the first retreat I went on, I was still in the military. It was like probably about two months after my patient died. I went on a, on a silent retreat for four days in the mountains, and, and I meditated and, and with incredible discipline, like I say. And then after that, I came home, and that's when I had this very powerful dream about a Sangoma who came to me and started talking to me. And, um, and that was what I call my, my calling dream, because he said to me in the dream, in order for me to teach you the ancient ways, you're going to come close to death. And I said to him, I've already come close to death. Yeah, three times, right? Yeah, I was, I was, it was, it was a very difficult time for me. So in the dream, I said to the Sangoma who came to me, I said, teach me because if you don't, my life is over because I'm only 18. I'm in the civil war in South Africa and I've just witnessed my, my patient die and I've put my dog down that I really love. And, um, and then he, he spoke to me a few times, like three times. He gave me the warning. He said, in my culture, in order for me to train you, you're going to get very, very sick and come close to death. And I said, I have no choice because um, I'm already 18 and my life is over. And then the next thing, he showed me a vision of the future that came to pass. And then I woke up from the dream. I had all these boils on my legs. Mm. And then I went from one physical illness to the next. And with the physical illnesses came a lot of psychic and intuitive uh, powers as well. But it wasn't what people think in terms of shamanism. It was extremely painful. And my body was being dismantled. So I was very, very sick physically. And, and I was very unstable um, in terms of my personality. I, I didn't have an ego, so my ego was getting dismantled. So it was very hard for me to engage with people and to have friendships and love and all of that because um, I didn't have an ego, you know, for many years. My ego was dismantled. So when people talk about shamanism, I don't think they really understand what shamanism is. Shamanism is being extremely sensitive and empathic to the extent where you don't have much of an ego and all you do is feel the suffering of others and of nature. And if people are really calling for that, they have to also be ready to, to actually die and to be, to be very, very fragile and sensitive in some ways. So this is my story. This is what happened to me. Oh, I, and it's amazing. And I know it keeps going too. And, but it, it's very interesting as you talk about that, because you said your ego was dismantled. It sounds like the way you phrased it, that maybe you had to start constructing it again over time. Is Would that be accurate in order to sort of keep acting, to keep, you know, not acting as in pretending, but keep having action <laughs> you know? to keep serving in the keep world? serving there we go yes yeah you see i mean when the west talks about ego they 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 have this impression of it that it's a negative thing and the ego is not negative the ego is our personality it's it's only negative when we become selfish and we don't think about other people and um so the first thing happened was this dismantlement of the personality of, you could say, my ego, where 
I felt the connection of all things. And then, yes, I had to, I had to build my myself up, you know, and I'm still doing that <laughs> because um, it takes a long time to, to bring yourself back into the world and actually to say, I'm actually good at this, or I'm actually, you know, these are my likes and dislikes, you know what I mean? Um, mm. And we need that because you need your ego to function in the world. Um, but we also need to make sure that it's not just about us, that we're not selfish. So was it like a process of sorting out what it, what is feeling others and what is me? Or Yes, yes. Yeah, that's the process. Um, and a big part of the Sangoma training is listening to the dreams, but not just ordinary dreams, but dreams of prophecy, dreams to do with the wisdom keepers, I call it, which are the ancestors when they come in and they talk to us. And and that's where I've got a lot of my instructions over the years, and I still do. Right? I get these very profound and prophetic dreams, and it's very much in keeping with the Sangoma tradition, with the culture in, in Southern Africa. And how can we... Yeah. Sorry. Well, one of the things that is so interesting in your book that stood out to me is as you were going through your, I don't even know if you'd started your initiation yet, but you know, in this, this beginning part that you were speaking of, as you, as, th as things were starting to emerge, you were, it seemed like almost caught between two worlds. So you were caught between your dream state and The, the waking state, and you were getting so much information from your dreams that that you that you started to almost um, rely on them too much at that time because I remember that you said that you had then had a dream where some somebody appeared and said, "Don't listen to all your dreams," or I can't remember mm -hmm. how you put it, but but you had to be directed to like. There, you know, you have to um, be sensitive to what, to which ones are prophetic and which ones are guiding you, um, and I think that leads into maybe what you were about to ask, Alessandra. But yeah, that was exactly what, what I was about to ask. Like how for someone like me and Cara or anyone listening, like how would you know which dreams to listen to? Well, that's part of the training, and that's. That's what we all have to do. It's about learning to listen to your your intuition, to your instinct, rather than just your personality and your likes and dislikes. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are all called nowadays to drop into our spirit and our soul and drop into that wind inside of us rather than just that narcissistic energy of likes and dislikes and wanting everyone to like you, you know. And when you're dropping into that deeper place inside of us, it's about just listening to your gut, you know, listening to your, your, your discernment, your intuition. And sometimes you're going to make mistakes. And I think that's part of the training and the apprenticeship that I went through and that we are all going through in life because life is like one big apprenticeship. And we are all being called every day to move from a deeper place inside of us. We are all being called nowadays to really listen to our intuition. And if we don't listen to our intuition, well, what's happening around us in terms of the decimation of the wilderness is a clear indication of people not listening to the wilderness inside themselves, which means their intuition, which means their soul. So the, 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 
the decimation of the wilderness outside is a clear sign that people are not listening to the wilderness inside themselves. And the only way to bring back a state of ecology outside and save the world is for each and every human being to take responsibility for their own spirit and to feed it. And the way we feed our spirits and our souls is through listening, listening to our intuition. And it's a challenge because sometimes we'll make mistakes. You know, we, we, we listen to our instinct and, 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 and something turned out wrong because we didn't listen carefully enough. And that's, that's the road we're on. We've got to make mistakes, but we have to keep going and we have to keep listening deeper, deeper listening. And how would you listen according to the path me and Carl follow? Meditation is a great tool to use to mm. go inside and listen. And are there other ways according to your tradition that... Just listen. How to li just listen. What does it mean to listen? I mean, just listen. Now, when people listen, are they listening to their projections? Are they listening to their judgments? And the way we know are that we're truly listening is when we start to develop a practice of also listening to nature. So when you listen to the sound of a bird, the, you can hear the bird is just singing from a place of pure spirit, pure spirit, because it's singing, its whole heart is singing. And it might be a small little bird, and the sound that is coming out of the little bird is like, or like jewels. It's like, it's like better than a symphony. It's better than an orchestra. And it's just complete 100% pure spirit coming out of that bird. And as we learn to listen to the pureness of nature, then we can learn to feel our own authentic voices and learn to discriminate between those judgmental projections inside of us and something deeper. And one of the ways of also listening is also to not have a filter of just listening to the good things. I call it the love and light. You know, the love and light um, spirituality is something we must all be very careful of because it's, it's just like focusing on sugar. You know, if you just focus on sweetness and sugar, you're going to get sick. You could become a diabetic. And it's very bad for you. We all know that. Um, and in traditional medicine, we talk about bitter medicine. And the Bushmen talk about ichacha. Ichacha yeza inamandla, which means the bitter medicine is sometimes the strongest medicine because it's the medicine that's going to transform your spirit. So with people doing meditation and yoga around the world, that's wonderful practice. The next thing is, where is your pain? Where is your suffering? Are you putting it under the carpet? Are you putting a smiley face on depression? Are you putting a smiley face on, on the sickness inside of you? Or are you breathing into it and making that part of your practice? That's where the call is. Because if you're meditating and you just want to feel good the whole time, and then you just want to feel that love and light energy that the gurus talk about, then you're in danger of not just preventing yourself from transforming, but of also being a pain in the ass 
because no one wants to be around someone who's going to proselytize and just focus on love and light the whole time. And when we're listening to the gurus and the, the, the meditation masters who talk about this infinite unconditional love, we also have to realize that that space of unconditional love also comes from a place of accepting our shadow, accepting our fragility and our vulnerability. And this is where we all must be with our practice. Yeah, beautiful. And one thing I found interesting as I listened to a previous interview with you is that you said, um, according to the, I don't know if I can, Xosa tradition, you don't have a word for depression, but it's only about, what is it about up energy or something? No, it's, it's, there's no word for depression. It's just umoya panzi or kanya umoya pezulu. So umoya is umoya is the word for wind, but it also means soul and mm-hmm. spirit. So we say that when someone's got energy is low, when the spirit energy is low, we just say umoya panzi, which means your spirit energy is low. And then the job of the sangoma is to help to to for the client to get to a place where we say umoya pezulu, so that they get to a place where their spirit is uplifted. And we do that with his songs and rhythms and plant medicine. Yeah. 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 And you also take responsibility, if I understand, for the community as well, keeping the community lifted. Is that right? Or is it more on the individual uh, level? I think everyone is responsible for themselves, right? But at the same time, the job of the Sangome is a community job in the sense that our job is to help lift the spirit of the individual and lift the spirit of the community. However, individuals within the community have to make a decision to want to lift their spirit up. So they take part in the singing and the dancing, and through doing that, their spirit lifts up. Well, Ian, you mentioned the the singing and dancing, and I was just sharing with Alessandra um, before we began that one of the beautiful things about your tradition is um, that you bring all of the elements. So you're bringing you're bringing the elements. You're bringing the wind and the the earth and the um, fire and um, water. You know, into I mean, it's throughout your your book how you're tapping into those mm-hmm. resources, and then all the nature, all the animals. Um, you, you talk a lot about even just weather, you know, that, that, um, when your teacher would be, uh, struggling with her, you know, not struggling, but if she was in a, a turbulent place, it was as though thunder was upon you, you know, so there's a very mm-hmm. natural, um, flow to your life and how you relate to things. And then, um, but it, you know, there's also the rhythm there's the sound, there's the the dancing and the movement of the energy through the body as you're um, dancing and bringing in that piece. So it's really such a natural um, way of relating to the world and moving through the world that's really, really beautiful. And, and I'm really curious because I know that you work with clients um, – around the world, really, in Europe, I think you also in North America. Is that right? 
um, yes. and, yeah, and South Africa. Yes. Yeah. And, mm. um, and so obviously like experientially the, the experiences are quite different for, um, when you're living in, in South Africa amongst all of the nature. And then I relate to myself in a, in a suburb in America or, you know, a year and a half ago, I was living in the heart of a medieval city in Italy. And I mean, the only nature that was around were pigeons and, uh, Mm -hmm. and lice. (laughs) And, And so, you know, we were, I was very insulated. I remember when we moved here and I was like, oh my gosh, the sky, because everything was so compact mm-hmm. there too, that you couldn't even, I was just, it took me a long time to get over the vastness of the sky. Um, so how do you, how do you meld those things together? How do you weave it to be meaningful? Because there is such power in that. I mean, there's just a natural piece to us as humans that we um, sort of back away from in our everyday life that has such potential? Oh, it's, it's very simple. You know, it seems complicated, but it's very, very simple. It's, it's like, if you look at a cat, a cat, when it's moving down the road, it welcomes nature. It allows the vulnerability of its body to be touched by nature. So as it's moving down the road and you're watching it move with such grace, such cheekiness sometimes, it's, it's feeling the wind and it's moving towards the wind or changing direction depending on whether the wind's too strong. And it's smelling and it's sensing and it's allowing itself to be touched by nature, to be touched by the elements. So I think that's what this practice is about, is about feeling our own vulnerability, but then also feeling our bodies and not just being attached to the inner dialogue of our thoughts, but to allow our skin to be touched by the sun, to be allow, allow our hair to be touched by the wind, to allow the heat of a hot day to touch us in other ways as well, or to allow the cold to touch us. So it's a whole somatic experience being a human being. It's not just this computer that's walking around in a fleshy body. And I think that's the practice, is letting your body wake up, not just in a yoga way or having a particular kind of qigong practice, but just in an ordinary, simple way, going for a walk, collecting your groceries down the road, like walking in the street of London is a great opportunity to practice. I'm walking down the streets in London and I see the foxes running across the road. And then I'm noticing the animals, I'm noticing the birds. And then I don't like having anything in my ears in terms of, you know, music and all that kind of stuff. I like to listen to the sounds. What's going on with the traffic? Am I breathing into my spine? And am I slouching or am I standing upright? How is my spine feeling? Can I feel the atmosphere pushing down on my spine or not? Because that's going to tell me whether it's going to be rain or not. How buoyant is my spine feeling and my spirit? Because it's going to teach me something. So it's not about being in a special place as a human being. It's about practicing wherever you are. 
And it's not saying that Africa is a better place to practice than London or than America. It's saying wherever you are is a beautiful place for you to practice. Stretch into your spine, feel the temperature on your skin, breathe in, allow the cells in your entire body to wake up. That's the practice. And also allow yourself to be vulnerable. Allow the temperature of nature to kiss you. So if it's cold, don't complain. Just put a jersey on and release into the coldness. If it's hot, release into the heat. And as you do that, something starts to change inside of you. There's a lot of um, consciousness being brought. I mean, there's a lot of Zen in what you're saying, that just awareness and that being conscious mm -hmm. of what you are feeling um, around you. And it's interesting even that you brought traffic into it, you know, because it, that is like, I think, the, the um, primary symbol of, of modern, you know, urban living where you, you're even mm -hmm. becoming one and finding that um, consciousness in the traffic and the, so thank you. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Like in New York, I, I did a lot of work in New York a, while, a number of years ago and it was a hectic place to be. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't, you know, I can't deny that, but it was also very energizing. So when you could release into that energy and feel the movement and breathe it in, then that energy can be with you. But if you're fighting that energy, then there's something else that's going to happen, you know? But as you release into that energy, then you feel the spirit of the land. And like New York, for example, is resting on that is very magnetic and very creative. And that is why it has this chaotic energy because it is so creative and it has the power of manifestation in the land. So if you release into that and you breathe that in, then possibilities can open for you. Um, I would like to go back a little bit to the shadows. Mm. Um, I listened to and talk with you. I can't remember how you put it, but going from facing your humanity, no, humanness, and then you can become a human being and you do mm -hmm. that by facing your shadows. Is that correct? And well, I just see, I mean, I live in a country which is one of the probably most fortunate countries in the world. We don't really have dangerous nature and uh, people have, most people have roof over their heads and food on their tables, but there's just a lot of mental illness and people are very depressed, even though they have on the paper, everything. And I've done my own work with, you know, facing my shadows. But um, I think we are opening up in the world to that kind of work. But it's, at least in this country, it's been a little bit like uh, something you don't necessarily do or talk about before it becomes like a crisis. So how would you... How would we work with our shadows? Because, I mean, I know from my own journey, it's not always an easy job. Like, it can be very intense. And I feel like I wouldn't have been able to do it without help and support. 
how would you recommend for people to dare to look into their shadows and face that? Well, it's not about daring to look. It's like, do you want to become a human being in the fullest way? Or do you want to be a human being in a superficial way? That's the choice everyone has to make. And no one can make that choice for them. If someone wants to step into their humanity in the fullest possible way, whether it means being a yoga student or Zen or shamanism or anything, you're going to have to face that shadow energy. And what is that shadow energy? That shadow energy really is the wilderness, is, is the wildness. So you have to become a wild man or a wild woman. You have to feel the wildness inside of you. And that wildness we call in closer Nduebile, which means wild. I mean, we work, when we work with animals, it's always best for us to work with animals that are straight from the bush, that are wild, because they're going to ignite the wildness inside of us. So as Europeans become domesticated, then they become sterile in some ways, their language becomes sterile, and then everything around them becomes sterile, and then they become sick because their soul is ancient and their soul is not sterile, but their soul is connected, connected to the wilderness and the wildness of nature. And if people are not expressing that in a productive way, then they will get sick. You have to look at the Scandinavian countries like Sweden and Norway. They have the Vikings, the Viking energy. Now, if that Viking energy, that wild primal energy is not being expressed in some way, people will get sick. They'll get very sick. And if we look at the Celtic culture, you know, there was, a, there was an old story where the Celts used to face the Romans. And the Romans were a bit like the Europeans now, very orderly, very clean living, um, smelled good, looked good, very orderly. And they were petrified of going up against the Celts because the Celts had these warriors known as the berserkers. And they'd paint themselves in blue and they would have blood curdling screams and they would just run at the Roman garrisons and they, would be, they wouldn't be afraid of death because they were like pure spirit. And the Roman Empire was petrified of them because they were so chaotic and they were so wild and there was nothing to tame them. Now what's happened to the next generation of these berserkers? They're nice, calm-looking Europeans but suffering from depression because that berserker energy inside of them is the energy of their ancestors, is the energy of their people. And unless it's expressed in some way, they're going to get sick in the same way the Vikings will get sick and the next generation will. So people need to feel that wilderness inside of them. They need to feel those primal energies but without necessarily expressing them in a negative way, but just to feel them and breathe into them and to accept them. And this is part of who they are. But often what happens with people when they feel these shadow energies, these primal energies, they go, oh, that's not me. That's that person. And they project the energy onto the other person. A bit like with the, the priests when they came to Africa, and they saw all these topless women dancing in such a wild way. They just said, yeah, they've got the demon inside of them. These women that had such, such joy of living inside of them. Because 
they were being activated by the spirit of joy and the spirit of this primal energy. And they probably fell in love with the woman as well, but because they're priests, they couldn't. So they said that they were demonic and they said that they were evil. And that was the most destructive thing they could have done. So what we need to do with the shadow energy, often it's not negative. It's just part of nature. It's part of our instinct. It's part of these primal energies that are keeping us alive. And we have to breathe into it and accept it. That's so fascinating. I, I think it, um, I imagine it touches on the ancestry piece as well, then perhaps it's a similar line of thinking because um, Alessandra and I also were talking before about the ancestry link and how in your teachings you um, you emphasize the importance of of connecting with your ancestors and um, giving thanks and um, asking for guidance and and allowing allowing like an openness. And, um, and so from my perspective, I, I guess I'm not that in touch with my ancestors. And one of the things that, that, that makes me think about is in the realm of spirit, um, I'm, I, I don't really, I'm not really following a similar path as my ancestors, as far as I know, from a spiritual perspective, so I don't necessarily naturally look to them for, uh, from a spiritual perspective. Does that make sense? If I'm more drawn to, for example, meditation from the East, um, then from a spirit perspective, I suppose my mental energy is going more in that direction. So I don't even know if I'm expressing myself correctly here, but, um, but it's interesting that potentiality. And then Alessandra, I'll let you speak for yourself, but you also had a, an, a, an interesting point around that too. I mean, I was just thinking about the whole, well, if I understand it, if it's about connecting to your ancestors and like, for example, in my case, I, I am a quarter German and that's something I always felt like, I think a lot of people with that, or like there are many different countries where you have this shame or something and how do we connect with that and um, come to peace with our history? Because, I mean, even though I, I never, uh, I wasn't there, as I know, during the Second World War, at least not in this life. Um, but I still feel the shame of, like, there were situations where I wouldn't want to say that I'm a quarter German because mm -hmm. it's still there. And, you know, many countries have this kind of shame history, I think. So how do we come to peace with that? Well, I think the first thing is just to accept that we are all children of God. We're all children of nature. And that if we make a mistake, then we need to pay for that. And if our ancestors made a mistake, mm. then we need to ask for forgiveness for them. But our job is not to judge. It's not to judge our ancestors and not to judge one another. If we make a mistake, then we apologize or we go to court or we go to jail or whatever, and then that's it, you know? But to hold shame, um, it's a normal energy, really. And, and I, I'm very familiar with this because of being brought up in South Africa and looking like this. And I'm still the only white guy in, in my township, you know? 
And for many years, I felt so ashamed. And I had to really work and face that because God made me like this, looking like this, coming from mother and father with this particular line and lineage. And then I became an adopted Kosa person. And that's, I was invited to become a Kosa um, apprentice and or to apprentice in the Kosa tradition. Um, but the core of me, my, my, my roots is Irish and English. So I have to honor my roots. So if people don't honor their roots, how are they going to grow tall like a tree? So to honor your ancestors does not mean to worship them, does not mean to accept that their behavior was right or wrong. To honor your ancestors means to just honor the, the survival that your people went through in order for you to be alive now. Mm. It's not making a judgment about how they survived and what they did. It's just to honor the life force that's been put, that's been given to you. So I, when, I, when I was in East Germany, I mean, I did a ceremony there in East Germany. I mean, the people were so full of shame. It was, it was very touching and very sad. And you could feel they were crippled by shame, just the way they were walking. I could see it in their spine. So I said to them about ancestors, I said, we need to deal with this right now because you have nothing to be ashamed of. You are a child of God. You're a child of nature. And you are no better or worse than a Kosa or Zulu person. And if anyone says otherwise, then they don't know the old teachings. So I said, right now, we're going to do a ceremony to sort this out. And you have a choice to stand with dignity or not. But I can't do it for you, but I can show you how to do it. So I said, if one of your ancestors was Stalin and the other was Hitler, I would recommend that you honor both of them. And of course, that's going to bring something up for people. So when I'm saying honoring your ancestors, I do not mean honoring their behavior. That's for the courts. That's for God. Hmm. To honor your ancestors means to even imagine your ancestors as six-month-old babies that are holding the light of Kanya, of shining, of humanity in their eyes. And it's that light that they're passing on to you. And it has a name. And that name is the name of your mother's people and your father's people. And when you honor them and thank them for passing this on to you, if there is atrocity that has, been ha that has happened in the family and then you feel that, then what you can do if you're feeling it strongly is to do some kind of reconciliation, to do... Um, a forgiveness ceremony on behalf of your ancestors that have committed bad deeds. And then you are freed up in your spirit because you have taken, you have recognized the shame inside of you and you have done something to heal it. And you're also working to heal those ancestors that have committed bad deeds. But you are not judging, but you are accepting who you are and the roots that God has given you. You have been given the roots of this particular soil and there's a name and it's your mother's people and father's people. But to not acknowledge that, but to want to be an indigenous person and to honor the Dalai Lama and other indigenous um, elders, but not your own people is a sign of very, very serious, low 
spiritual self-esteem. And there's no way that you can increase your dignity and the dignity of your people if you behave like that. Hmm. So it's a way of just saying thanks to the life that has been carried yeah. on through generations. The animals do that in their own way. Hmm. The elephants do that in their own way. The lions do that in their own way. But human beings think that they're so clever, but they don't do that. It's like imagine the, the pine tree looking at the lavender bush and saying, oh, I wish I was a lavender bush. I wish I was like you. They don't do that. Mm -hmm. They accept the medicine that they have got, that they've received from life. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Because there shouldn't be any confusion around this. It's not complicated. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it does. It's um, And it's a new... Um, it's a new practice for me because it's not something that I've really come across before here in America or in other places. It's not really part of, for instance, you know, a traditional Christian background or um, that I'm familiar with. So it's... But so it I, is, so. Is it's it? Bit, it is. It's in all traditions. If you look at what does Jesus say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. Mm. What, is, what does it say in the New Testament? It says, honor thy mother and father. Mm. Honor thy mother and father. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus spoke about all these things. In fact, if you want to look at Christianity, Christianity and the way Jesus came to be was exactly the way we practice in South Africa in terms of someone becoming a Sangoma. Jesus came from the manger he was born with in poverty he was born with a donkey next to him with a cow with a goat this is where he was born he wasn't born in a palace mm. people forget that and in the townships where we do our prayers is outside next to the donkeys next to the cows next to the goats and when we get initiated that's where we are initiated and then we look up at the stars and we look up and we say, what's happening to the stars? Uh, is this being blessed? And then we look at the animals. What happened with Jesus? The manger, the animals were blessing him. People forget about Christianity. Are they Christian if they don't listen to Jesus' teachings and the way Jesus was born into the world? He wasn't born in a Fortune 500 company. He was born in a manger with a donkey next to him, a cow, goats. Am I making sense? Yes, yes. That's I'm where just... he was born. He was born in a very indigenous, shamanic way hmm. as a child of the earth. But people don't want to listen to that. I don't know why. It doesn't make sense to me. Because when I have priests in the township and the community come, the priests sit, the African priests sit with me. And one of them, I asked him, I said, do you find that there's a, there's a dissonance here because you're here in a traditional ancestral ceremony? And he said, no, this is where Jesus was born in a manger. And when I sit here, it helps me, me to remember my humanity. 
The animals are blessing us and we have a responsibility to them. Mm. This is the way Jesus was born and this helps me to become a better priest. So no, Christianity is right up there. Well, I would like to ask, um, I mean, you provided a lot of wisdom throughout the talk and which we can apply to our daily life and practice. But since you serve around the world and connect with people, is there something that you can see that is like, I don't know if you can pinpoint like something that humanity needs to learn or like, is there something you can see overall in humanity right now that we need to heal or that we can start doing? People need to listen to their own pain, their own vulnerability with compassion. Mm. You can only change things when we are kind towards ourselves. So when an animal like a leopard, for example, has got a thorn in its foot, it doesn't beat itself up and keep pushing itself through the heat of the, of the summer's day because it knows it's going to get dehydrated and it could die. It feeds its body with energy and it goes into the shade and it feels the thorn in its foot and it keeps moving and nudging the thorn until eventually it comes out, but it doesn't over-exhaust itself. It accepts its vulnerability. It accepts the pain that it's in, and then it does something about it. So this is what we have to do as human beings. We have to, each of us as individuals, we have to medicate ourselves with compassion, which means listening to our own pain. And then if we need help, ask for help. And as we can be more vulnerable and open to our own vulnerability, then we will be much more compassionate with other people's vulnerabilities. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, looking at the nature world, it seems so much more simple the way you describe it. But we humans tend to make it so much more complicated, don't we? But it isn't, I mean, if you're in a city like London uh, or Dublin or New York or wherever, and you go to a park and you watch all the birds coming in and then you watch the energy of the birds. I mean, that in itself is teaching. Or you watch the stray cats on the streets. I'm always impressed with the stray cats and how they survive. Really wonderful. Um, so if people want to know more and to engage with you, how do you suggest they... Um, do that. You have a wonderful website. Of course, we've talked about the book and you've got your audio teachings mm. and you also mm -hmm. do consultations. Is that correct? And retreats? Yes. And I do. Um, I'm doing a, a retreat every year now in the Kalahari Desert to help with the focus of that retreat. I call it Dreams and Tracking in the Kalahari. And it's a focus um, about helping the helping the modern person to connect with indigenous medicine. So it's indigenous medicine for the modern man and woman. And so teaching them the skills of tracking in nature and teaching them the skills of inner tracking in terms of listening to their spirit. So it's educating people in an old way so that, that when they go back to the city, wherever they come from, they'll have more skills and 
so that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm doing that every year now. I'm just starting now. I'm going to be starting in February and March. And it's in Botswana and Kalahari. And uh, yeah, all the information is on my website. Or people can, can, can reach out to me for private sessions. I do a mentoring. So I, just a once-off session is nice, but I, I'd really recommend the mentoring sessions, which are seven sessions. Because mm. with seven sessions, people can start to absorb what I'm talking about and I get them to really look at their dreams and get them to really face that that wilderness inside of them. And often it takes a few sessions for people to really drop into that. So I really recommend those mentoring sessions. I enjoy them and it's a way for me to get to know people a bit more. Um, once off, there's only so much I can do in one session with someone. But in seven sessions, we can develop a relationship together and then something can happen. But it's not just up to me. It's also up to the client. I can only do 50%. Mm. And the other 50% comes from the client. Um, but that's about relationship. We have to make a choice always. Do I want to wake up? Do I want to feel my pain? Or do I want to stay asleep? We all have a choice. <laughs> wow, that's wonderful. Well. I thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for your time. This has been really, really beautiful. Mm. So nice to meet you. I love your book and um, and your story and, and all the healing that you're doing for the world, all the good you're doing for the world. I uh, thank you from my heart. And, um, and you're welcome anytime to join us. It's been such a pleasure. Mm. Yeah, thank you for giving us your time and for sharing with the listeners. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. So we had thought we were finished there and we stopped recording. And then John felt inspired to offer some more wisdom, which was really beautiful. And we caught most of it. But he is beginning to speak about... Um, that this wisdom and intuitive guidance is available to everybody and he's here to show the potential within each of us and we mustn't look at him or people like him as um, something apart from what lies within us. To have the courage to, to feel their own magic and their own alchemy and their own vulnerability and their own alchemy, you know, their own purpose inside of them, which is an adventure story. Each person has an adventure story just waiting for them wherever they are. My, my, I'm, most, I'm not special in any particular way. I'm not more special than the listeners. Um, the only thing I've done probably more than, more than a lot of people is that I'm very tenacious and I, I really listen to my dreams and then I follow through with my dreams and what I see. Um, and that's what I want to inspire people to do, to become warriors, to become spiritual warriors. And to be a spiritual warrior just means listening to your vulnerability and listening to the wind of your spirit. What is your spirit saying to you? Because your spirit is valuable. Your spirit is beautiful. No, no one of us is better than the other. All the gurus, all the Buddhas are not better than you, the listener. 
So I wrote the book and I'll do these podcasts just to inspire people, not to say how wonderful I am, because I don't think I am. My job is to help inspire each and every person to have the courage to listen to your dreams and listen to your spirit. What does it say? Because there's so much magic out there. And all we have to do is listen to it inside of us. And then um, the human race can become like this beautiful flower with all these different petals and different fragrances, rather than us all being the same. Anyway, so that's my, my wish for the listener and for all of you. Thank you. Thanks.